Welcome back, folks. Our season is winding down, and this part of our story is wrapping up. John Stone and the players related to him have opened up a number of avenues for exploration, and we've tried our best to find the right roads to take. It's not easy to summarize and put a bow on this kind of story, but we're damn sure gonna try. The events you'll learn about in the next two episodes will reveal what happened to our characters when this whole drama was more or less settled. And a lucky few of them will live on as we continue their stories in our next season. For now, let's start the festivities with the man we learned to be our informant, Ronnie. Let's call him by his real name, James Ricci. Ronnie, aka James Ricci, our informant is standing outside of a 7-Eleven talking to PCO on a payphone. James Ricci went by the name Ronnie for two years, working undercover as part of the mafia in LA. It's all been building to this. Listen, it's gotta be tonight. If I don't grab it now, we'll have to wait another week, and you know I just don't have that kind of time. Okay, fine. Take care of it. Go see a movie or something. Just stay off the roads. I won't be ready in time. You can't be fucking serious. Unfortunately, yes. I'm waiting on a call right now, but it sounds like a done deal. What the fuck do you mean you're waiting on a phone call? It's just a car. It's got fucking wheels and a motor. I'm already a target out here, man. When I got it, I need to be gone. We learned that after Hollywood was killed, Rosso was kidnapped by Casper and his friend Benito. In an effort to get himself freed, Rosso told Casper about a potential plan to bring the Italians and Mexicans together again and ease the tension. Rosso told Casper about this guy Denny Allen, a large-scale restaurant supplier that was dirty, and how he could theoretically help them import certain products from Mexico. Casper went over Loza's head, tried to take some initiative. He knew it was a risk, but he called the Italians up, finally got on the phone with Vinny, and they agreed to a one-on-one meeting. Neither Casper nor Vinny would agree to come unarmed. Just after dark, Casper is walking with Rosso, hands still tied, up to the Italian warehouse next to Leo's gym. He pulls out his gun and points it at Rosso's back as they approach the warehouse door. Upon entering, he sees Vinny playing cards with another Italian guy, Happy Jack. Casper grabs Rosso's arm and looks around the warehouse. I thought I said come alone, he says to Vinny. Uh, you're not alone. Yes, Casper was with Rosso. His pal Benito was also waiting and listening just outside the door. Casper approaches Vinny and Happy Jack, still holding Rosso by the arm. Vinny and Happy Jack put their cards down on the table. Casper speaks up. The only reason I'm here is because your man's got a big mouth. Oh, what'd you guys talk about? School memories? I think you know what we talked about. So why don't you just start telling me what you've got? 
You're fucking lucky you ain't dead already. Coming in here with one of my guys after killing another one of them? They were far from the first casualties in this war, and you know it. And far from the last. Vincent points to Rosso. Take the fucking rope off. Casper reluctantly takes the rope from around Rosso's wrist. He continues to hold him by the arm with his gun to his back. There. Isn't that better? (sighs) Denny Allen. I don't give two shits about Denny Allen. As long as he keeps up with his dues. Frankly, it's not even my territory. I wouldn't mind keeping my hands clean of it. I'm going to need you to be clear about this. Can we bring our product in with this guy or not? Here's what's going to happen, Casper. Rosso is going to stay here and you're going to leave. If Loza agrees to our conditions on this, I'll set it up. But only then. Casper lets out an annoyed sigh. (sighs) What if I told you I have a gun to your boy's back right now? I would tell you it's going to be your funeral and my trial. Happy Jack stands up and pulls out his gun. Yo, Benito, Casper calls. Benito pops around the large warehouse door, gun drawn. He slowly approaches the group. Vincent stands up and gently pushes Happy Jack's gun down. Look at these guys, Jack. This is what they do after they kill one of my men. He turns to Casper. I agree to meet with you, Casper. I said I'd talk to your boss. You pull guns on us? You want to talk business? Then you pull guns on us? Where the fuck are Mickey and Ronnie? Casper thinks for a moment then pushes Rosso down to the floor. He starts backing up with Benito, gun still drawn. You can keep Richie, boy. Happy Jack helps Rosso get up as Vincent goes into his office. He closes the door behind him, takes his gun out, and shoots the couch. James Ricci is walking up to the Italian warehouse. It should be dead at this time of night as he takes out his keys and opens the lock on the gate. A forest green Ford Escort is parked inside. He quietly opens the driver's side door and sees the keys hanging in the ignition. Ronnie grabs the keys, walks to the rear of the Ford Escort and opens the trunk. He feels around, making sure the packages are secure. Suddenly, Voices and footsteps are heard. Out of fear, James quickly puts the keys back in the ignition and closes the door slowly. Panicking, James looks around for a place to hide. Realizing that the trunk is still opened, he decides to crawl in, holding it open with his hand. Man, I swear I locked this place up when we left. Do you remember if I did? I specifically remember holding the keys in my hand. I remember you humming that fucking song. Stuck in my head all day. Why Vincent has us coming back here in the middle of the night is beyond me. I mean, what the fuck? Just to move a car that we have to pick up again in the morning? 
It's fucking horseshit if you ask me. I'm sure it's fucking fishy to you. But if Vincent tells me to get the car, I'm getting the goddamn car. And that's a good fucking song, by the way. Don't start with that shit again. Angel opens the large door and lets Rocco pull out in the Ford Escort. The car drives out of the warehouse and onto the street. Angel closes the door and locks the gate, then gets in the passenger seat. The car drives off with James in the trunk. The Ford Escort pulls into a sandwich shop. Angel and Rocco park and go eat. After some time, James gets out of the trunk and opens the driver's side door. He sees no keys in the car and decides to hang back in the shadows and wait. After finishing their meal, the two men walk towards the car. Honestly, this whole thing started falling apart long before John got capped. Vincent should have never cut a deal with that Loza character. Should have went straight to the source. Hey, you think us getting this car has anything to do with what Vinny said about that rat? As Rocco enters the car, James grabs him by the shoulders and throws him to the ground. He kicks him real hard in the stomach. Before he can begin searching for the keys, Angel comes up from behind and tries to put James in a sleeper hold. James elbows him in the stomach and then punches him in the face. As James turns around, he ducks a punch, steps back, and pulls out a gun. Give me the fucking keys. R- Ronnie? Is that you? What are you doing here, man? Listen, Angel, just give me the keys and walk away. You know I can't do that. The two men lunge at James. As he holds Angel off, Rocco stabs him in the side. James Ricci pulls the knife out and strikes him with the butt of his gun. He then shoots Angel in the leg, runs over, grabs the keys from his pocket, and drives off. After a long and tireless journey, narrowly escaping death at the Rhino Strip Club, being taken prisoner in Tijuana, only to come back to Los Angeles and get involved in more shady antics, the dynamic duo finally made it to In-N-Out Burgers to secure Trevor's precious double-double. It's not all fun and games for Max and Trevor, though. As the pair are munching their gnarly grub, uncertainty weighs down on them like a greasy beef patty on a pillowy bun. They're still facing eviction and have yet to figure out their next move. Just as Trevor is about to speak, the entire place goes silent. Val Kilmer has just walked in. Last year, in 93, director Joel Schumacher applauded Kilmer's role in the western Tombstone, where Kilmer played Doc Holliday. He even learned the piano to play Chopin for the role. So Schumacher was impressed. They ousted Michael Keaton as Batman and later this year, around the time Mix and Mingle is debuting, Val and company will start filming on Batman Forever. Anyway, Kilmer decided to stop in for some chow before heading back to his place in the hills. Kilmer casually makes his way to the counter and orders a double-double with fries. As he turns around, the entire dining room is still watching his every step. 
Val Kilmer, and Trevor lock eyes. It's a bizarre moment, a world's colliding type of situation. For a brief instance, Val and Trevor see into each other's souls. They share a sort of oneness of being, tapping into a certain intensity which can only be described as destiny, gliding together on a hyperwave of existence, holding hands into the beyond. That's how Trevor would go on to describe it later while stoned off his ass. You might wonder how Val Kilmer would ever end up staring into that bottomless pit of a soul called Trevor. Well, he wasn't. Val was actually staring over him, looking outside the window at some beautiful beach babe who was bending over to tighten her rollerblades. Either way, he came away from that encounter with an idea. Dude, I got it. Got what, dude? I know how we're going to get back on our feet. We'll start a Hollywood tour business. Like your uncle? Exactly. I thought you said that didn't work out, dude. Said he skipped town. Well, that's true, but just look at this place, man. It's crawling with tourists. Chinese, Japanese, Middle Easterners. I mean, fuck, man. How many times does someone with broken English come up to us with one of those fake-ass maps asking for directions? Yeah, it's pretty fucking annoying if you ask me. You really think we could make money doing this? Dude, think about it. These people always have cash. They're just dying to spend it, practically giving it away. Best part is, dude, the tour bus is just sitting over at my grandma's right now, waiting for us. Max thinks to himself, as he takes another bite of his double-double. He envisions hot chicks and bachelorette parties. He sees himself on the second floor of the double-decker bus, talking on a loudspeaker, people hanging on his every word. Trevor and him partying with chicks afterwards. The dollars are pouring in. Soon he and Trevor have several buses cruising through Hollywood and Beverly Hills. The name Hollywood Dreams painted in bright green letters on the side. Fuck yeah, dude, I'm in. Lindsay is returning home after his date. Coming to his apartment door, he notices three spots of blood just below the doorknob. Without hesitating, Lindsay keeps walking until he exits the back of the building. Stopping to think for a moment, Lindsay decides to hop a fence and quietly climbs in his bedroom window. He walks towards his closet, reaching into an old duffel bag and pulls out a small handgun. In an instant, Lindsay opens his bedroom door, gun drawn. His eyes come to rest on James Ricci, sitting at his kitchen table, thumbing through a bodybuilding magazine. Who the fuck are you? Lindsay, just put that toy of yours away. Come sit down with me. I'd choose my words wisely, friend. Doesn't that gun feel a little off to you? Man, you really have gone soft. Hanging out with actors will do that to you, I suppose. Lindsay plays with the weight of his gun. Looking frustrated, he puts the gun down on a side table 
and walks towards James, taking a seat across from him. Lindsay, you really don't recognize me, do you? Lindsay looks at him closer and thinks. Richie, is that you? <coughs> I'm sorry for the games, man. I really am. But I'm in a bit of a pickle right now. I'll say. I mean, you look like shit. Is that your fucking blood out there? Painted on the sidewalk? James looks at him. What do you think? Let me get this straight. I haven't heard from you in like three years. You just up and vanished. You get stabbed and suddenly your best option is to break into my apartment so you can read muscle and fitness? I know it seems ridiculous, but here's the thing, Lindsay. I've been working undercover, building a case, a big case, and now it might all go to shit. That's why I'm here. I have no one else to turn to. I need your help tonight. My help? <laughs> yes, Lindsay. If you really want my help, let me take you to the hospital. Lindsay stands up from the table, walks over to James, and gets down on one knee to look at his wound. Seeing how much it's still bleeding, Lindsay heads to his bedroom. He comes back with a towel, duct tape, and some hydrogen peroxide. Just chill for a minute. I can't go to a hospital, Lindsay. I need you to do one last thing or this whole investigation will fall apart. The last two years of my life will have been wasted. Listen, James. I just can't go play cops and robbers with you on a whim. I have my own shit to look after. If I get hurt offset or sent to jail, I'm fucked. I know, Lindsay. I wouldn't be here if I had any other options right now. I'm calling in my favor. Favor? What the fuck are you talking about favors? <coughs> oh, please. Don't give me that shit. Don't forget who pulled you out of the water. If I hadn't cut that line, you'd be fucking fish food right now. Oh, here we go again with that fucking boat bullshit. We both know I had it under control. Okay, fine. I don't have time for that. I'm too messed up right now to finish this thing. I got a brand new Ford Escort outside with your name on it. Just a little drive. That's it. Sorry, Richie. As much as I want to, I just can't go risking my life because you think I owe you for buds. Fine. Fuck it. Good to see you too, Lindsay. James gets up to leave and falls down, the loss of blood starting to get the best of him. Lindsay comes to his aid. You always were a drama queen. That's all you need me to do, right? Just drive your stupid car? James nods. All right, but that's it. When I get you there, we're going to the hospital. Deal? Deal. Lindsay helps him to his feet puts his arm around his shoulders, and begins to walk with him. After getting settled in the car, Lindsay takes another look at James and turns the ignition.
Stacy is in an ABC building at the very first table read for the pilot episode of Mix and Mingle. She's loving every moment, listening closely to her co-stars for the first time. In the opening scene, Billy D, street-tough New Yorker, is with his girlfriend, Jen, the mother of the group. I'll figure it out, Billy D says. You'll figure it out? Sure. Who do you think you are? Sherlock Holmes? If someone's stealing our mail, I can find out who. Honey, just remember to pick up the dry cleaning, and you'll look like a superhero to me. I'll show you. And they kiss. Good. Good job, guys. In the next scene, ZZ, the rock and roll doctor, is helping a patient. Uh, yeah, doc. I just haven't been feeling myself. Haven't had any energy. Feeling lethargic and lazy. Any depression? ZZ asks. The patient nods his head. Any sexual side effects? The patient nods his head more emphatically. Brian, what I believe we're dealing with here is something psychological. What I'm going to need you to do is stop by Sam Goody. For the depression, pick up any of the first four Zeppelin records, okay? Maybe some Sabbath, yeah? Afterwards, Zizi is speaking with his girlfriend Aaron, the uptight science type. Zizi, you went to Johns Hopkins. Why are you talking about Led Zeppelin with your patients? Hey, the good people over at Johnson & Johnson, they ain't got nothing on the healing powers of Page and Plant. In Stacy's first scene, her character, Jacqueline, is outside in the rain crying. Her boyfriend, Jeremy, has just broken up with her. Ma'am, are you... Hey, Jacqueline, is that you? It's Ryan, the Texas cowboy, new to the big city. Ryan? Come on, Jackie. Let's get out of that rain. Are you going to Jen and Billy D's? Yep, let's go, darling. Hey, look! Barbecue! I could eat me half a hog! Yeehaw! <laughs> oh, Ryan. Ryan and Jacqueline head over to Jen and Billy D's to find out they're getting evicted from their apartment. The director stands up and addresses the actors. Okay, guys, so when everyone comes together to help out Billy D and Jen, we want to show how close the group is. Some of these guys have only just met, but they're already acting like family. It's a great pilot, Stacy says. The other actors smile and nod in agreement. There's a lot to work with there. We've got a good script, you're right. But I don't need to tell you how important your performances are. He looks over them carefully. Stacy, Lynn, Tebow, I heard some flubbed lines today. Get off script and start focusing on your emotions and your delivery. Execution, people. We need a great pilot or we won't get picked up.
Rachel and Liz saw John Arbor Franklin again at Mystic Glow Bookstore the other day, and he invited them over to his place for some kind of new age hootenanny. When they showed up at the address, Rachel and Liz found a nice house on the outskirts of Brentwood. Wow, is this the place? It's the right number. Before they have a chance to knock, John Arbor Franklin opens the door. Good evening, Earthlings, he says with a smile. Hey, nice place. They start to walk in. Is this all yours? At the moment, my uh, aunt might come back and take a room, but she's currently in the Midwest. I see. Rachel and Liz follow him inside, where they find a group of people sitting around drinking wine and talking. They recognize all but one of them from the Mystic Glow meetings. They're casually dressed. Just a few of the many LA freaks and geeks. There's Topper, currently on methadone, and convinced the world will end in 1999. He came with Navajo, his girlfriend. She's not Navajo or Native American at all. She's Scotch-Irish. And there's Nitro, the 55-year-old hippie with alien eyes. He's been a Mystic Globe fixture for about 25 years. Salutations, Nitro, Liz says. Hey. He looks at Liz, then Rachel. It's thunder and lightning. Hi, Nitro, Rachel says. She looks to the others. Hi, guys. John Arbor Franklin walks back to the group as everyone quiets. I'm glad you all could come. Thanks for having us. I thought you might be interested in a vision I had last week during a particularly intense steam meditation. In this vision, I was with a group and the members appeared to be each of you. John Arbor Franklin nods at them one by one. We were all beam-lifted by starlight and asked to join their civilization. The group listens in awe. The Greys? Topper says. John Arbor Franklin shakes his head. This was a species never seen nor cataloged by man, able to shapeshift. I couldn't begin to describe them. Liz looks wide-eyed. I think I had the same dream. She says. Interconnectivity. Nitro. Was this a lucky week for you? I had a $50 lottery ticket. Whoa, Topper says. Navajo. Is there something you want to tell Topper? Navajo looks surprised. She then looks down. Topper, Navajo says. Did you mean what you said about being a daddy? Are you... He looks Navajo in her eyes. Don't mess with me. I'm not messing with you, daddy. You mean you're... Oh my God! Topper and Navajo embrace. Rachel, I know this week was difficult. You see, every hand comes from God with the capacity to do great or terrible things. On behalf of Starlight, I'm sorry about what happened. Rachel breaks out in tears. It's okay. Sorry. 
I'm not normally a crying person. No problem, Lightning. This is a safe place. You felt something, and we all felt it. And it's like, just go with it, girl. The group sits for a moment, each person lost in thought. Liz, is your mom feeling better? She is. It seems our stories have intertwined, and we've met here against all odds, given the highly unlikely series of events which must have occurred to lead us to tonight. They all look at each other, a certain indescribable feeling in the air. Well, let's toast to Topper and Navajo. Yeah. <laughs> Lindsay and Richie pull up next to a Baskin Robbins ice cream store. Richie is looking very pale. Somehow you failed to mention that your safe house is actually a fucking Baskin Robbins. Honestly, man. This has to be a setup or something. No. No, I've been with this guy since day one. He's got no reason to feed me to the wolves now. He's got just as much riding on this as I do. Seriously, man? Just look around. Where am I supposed to park this thing? Inside between the rainbow sherbet and the fucking ice cream cakes? Can we at least call him? It wouldn't do any good. He's probably on his way as we speak. <coughs> oh, fuck. This is the place. Bro, you're in bad shape. Why don't we just go to the hospital? I'll drop you off, then I'll come right back. James is growing weaker by the minute. Lindsay, you know what I've been through just to get here? Lindsay and Richie sit quietly in the car watching the sunrise. Lindsay turns to look at Richie and notices his eyes are closed. He reaches over to him, placing two fingers on his carotid artery. He feels a pulse, but it's faint. Lindsay leans back and thinks. Lindsay and Richie are part of a six-man team carrying a big black rubber boat on their head. It's the second day of Hell Week, and some guys are already starting to pass out and fall asleep from fatigue. Lindsay slaps Richie hard on the back. Wake up, Richie! Hey, tell him to get the fuck up! I'm fucking fine! Lindsay and Richie are in the middle position under the boat. Another soldier slaps Lindsay on the back. Watch him! Yeah, I got it! Lindsay, along with all the other guys, are struggling to stay lucid after having been through all this training. Later, the six-man crew is locked in arms, lying on a cold beach. Lindsay starts singing. The crew is repeating his lines. Hey, hey, Whiskey Jack. Hey, hey, Whiskey Jack. Meet me down by the railroad track. Meet me down by the railroad track. With a K-bar in my hand. With a K-bar in my hand. I'm gonna be a stabbing man. I'm gonna be a stabbing man.
Back in the car, Lindsay is staring into space, lost in thought. He softly sings to himself. A shooting man, a drinking man, a loving man. He looks over to James, sleeping next to him. Lindsay starts the car, shifts into drive, begins to take off when an unmarked car speeds into the parking lot and comes to a screeching halt. Lindsay grabs the gun, looking curiously at the other car. The other driver, seeing Lindsay, waits to react as they check each other out for a moment. Step out of the car with your hands up. I don't know who you are, but that's my friend in there. He needs my help. How do I know this whole thing isn't a setup? Seriously? I'm coming out, okay? PCO cautiously gets out of the car with his hands up. Okay, well let me get a good look at you. A setup, huh? If it were, I wouldn't have just barged in with no backup. Look around, man. It's just us. Who are you and what are you doing with my friend there? He slowly approaches Lindsay's car. Listen, man. This has been a very strange night for me. But I'm one of the good guys. Either prove to me that you know my friend, or I'm going to have to pull this trigger. Okay, that's good. I can work with that. Okay, your friend there, lying in the car next to you, is James Ricci. He's been working with me for the last two years. He was a Navy SEAL in Operation Desert Storm. All right, I got it. Will you just help? Lindsay gets out of the car and goes to the passenger side. He's fucking dying over here. Great hideout, by the way. PCO and Lindsay look over Ricci in his condition. PCO knows he needs to do something quick. Here, take my car. Get Ricci to the nearest hospital. Don't give him a name or anything. Just get him there. What are you going to do with this thing? There's a garage behind this place. The owner owes me something. Now, let's get him out of here. PCO and Lindsay carry Ricci into the unmarked car. Lindsay gets in and is about to speed off. I don't know who you are, but you may have saved your friend's life tonight. Let's just say I owed him one. Lindsay starts the car and speeds off. <laughs>